Welcome to Rethink Retirement, a Next Up podcast. We're here to show you how you can use your skills and experience as you move into mm, retirement or unretirement, as we like to call it. I'm Victoria Tomlinson. And I'm Trevor Hatton. And each episode, we invite a guest to share their story of leaving a traditional working life and starting new things. And I know that this can be a very challenging time. So I hope that by listening to other people's stories, uh, it'll help inspire you with some ideas. And if you're finding things a bit challenging, maybe give you some more hope and help and inspiration. Today, we're delighted to welcome Michael Skopinka, who had a long career at the Financial Times, first of all, as a journalist, and then he was editor of the Weekend Financial Times, and then went on to head up their special reports section. My early career was in PR, and I felt, I remember it clearly, I had my very first ever journalist lunch, and it was with Michael Skopinka. And Michael, I felt very grown up when I was told, you need to go and meet Michael, because you were on the management page then, and I needed to go and have a journalist lunch. So welcome, and thank you for joining us. Well, Welcome. thank you, Victoria. Welcome. And hello, Trevor. And uh, as you say, Victoria, it was, uh, my I think, my first week on the Financial Times. Really? And that was a very long time ago. And uh, I got a call from you. And uh, you said, could I have lunch with you? Could I meet you? And then I don't know if you want to tell the story of how we discovered we'd actually already met. Well, go on. You, t- you tell the story. <laughs> it was completely bizarre. So before joining the Financial Times, uh, I started out as a journalist actually in Greece, and I was working as a freelance journalist in Greece. And and one uh, weekend, uh, a group of uh, contacts that I had at the British Embassy uh, suggested that we all climb Mount Olympus, which was a two day climb. You sort of uh, slept in some huts halfway up and then you climb down. And it was quite a big crowd and somebody had uh, brought along a friend. And um, we started walking. This was, as I say, going to be two days up and down. And after about half an hour, the friend suddenly said, "Uh, listen, everybody, I I think I've just really sort of um, overestimated what I can do and how far I can walk. So I'm going to go back down and I'm going to stay in a youth hostel and uh, I'll see you all when you get down. Now, I'd forgotten all about that. And um, we then had this first um, business lunch, my first lunch as an FT journalist uh, with this uh, a PR person who kindly invited me for lunch and she asked me what I had done previously and I said that I had started out as a journalist in uh, Greece and she said oh I went to Greece I went to visit this um, friend of mine Nick who was at the British Embassy and uh, it was a bit embarrassing because we went on this hike up Mount Olympus and um, I then I realized I wasn't going to make it so I, I went down and stayed in a youth hostel and I was laughing at this and uh victoria said to me um well i can see you're laughing you've obviously come across stories like this before and i said well actually i've come across this particular story before because i was there (laughs) you were sort of saying i know i was there and you know how when you sometimes say to people oh i know i was there that kind of general way eventually the penny started dropping you really mean you were there i remember you in the other car and there were a whole bunch of of chaps getting out and they put these boots on I had plimsolls this is how long ago it was and I thought I can't do this and everyone said to me you're so brave and I said honestly I'm not brave the brave thing would have been and the stupid thing would have been to keep going and you were all scampering away like mountain goats and I was getting further behind I thought call it quits quick get out of this quickly so anyway those are Greek reminiscences Michael sorry can I just um from there, Greece and your first week at the Financial Times ask you to sort of now fast forward. 
tell us a, a, a brief story of, of um, your career and, and how you got to this point where you are now. Just a quick summary. So I, uh, I came back uh, after that, um, working in Greece for a couple of years, came back to London, managed to get a job with some trade magazines. And then after three attempts, really, on my third attempt, got a job at the FT and uh, worked there very, very happily for 34 years. Um, from the moment I walked into the Financial Times, I never, ever wanted to be anywhere else. And uh, as Victoria said earlier, I had all sorts of jobs. I covered all sorts of industries aerospace industry, electronics industry, leisure industries. And I wrote about management. I wrote about leadership as well before, before and after occupying these leadership positions. And then the last four years at the Financial Times, I was seconded. I carried on working as a, a columnist on the Financial Times, but I was seconded to set up an executive education arm for the Financial Times. It had already started, but my job was to try and integrate the journalist into it. And I knew, and the Financial Times knew, that this would be my final task at the Financial Times, because it was clear to all of us there was not going to be an appropriate position to come back to after this. I had really kind of come to the end of the road. And uh, so that is where I was when I had to face this prospect in the second half of my 60s, of thinking, uh, what am I going to do next? Because Victoria said at the beginning, uh, we talk about retirement or unretirement. Retirement just was not a part of my vocabulary. I'm not, as Victoria will tell you, I'm not the retiring type. No. And um, <laughs> so I had started to plan this. I, I, I really knew that I was going to be doing something else. And um, two things really prompted this and two things affected this. The first was when I ran the special report section, I had a deputy, a fabulous deputy who was older than me, uh, who retired uh, and went off uh, because he wanted to ride his bike all over the world. And he did that for a, a year or two. And then he started to come back to do sort of editing sessions at the FT because he obviously missed the place. And I said to him, do you have any advice for me? And he said, yes, I've got one piece of advice for you. And that is make a plan. Oh. I didn't make a plan. You need to make a plan. So I started to make a plan. And the plan I made was prompted by um, a lunch that I had at Pret-a-Manger near the FT building. A, a colleague of mine said, could we go and have a sandwich? Uh, I want to ask your advice. And we went um, and had lunch and she had problems at work and problems with her boss and we talked them through. And I was in the position of having been a boss, been in the Financial Times leadership team for close on a decade, but no longer in the leadership team. So I had some sort of insight into it and I talked to her about what I thought she should do. And at the end of the lunch, she said to me, thanks very much. And she said to me, you know, you should charge for this. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And then later on in the day, another younger colleague came and asked me about something. And I told her what I thought. And she said, you know, you should do this for a living. <laughs> and I thought, so that's twice in one day. <laughs> so I started looking into it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, because uh, perhaps I'd like to sort of make a new career in giving people career advice and work advice, how to handle your boss, how to handle being a boss, which I'd also had some pretty long and often hard experience of where Victoria was often actually, she maybe doesn't realize this was actually very helpful in her advice. Um, I thought I need to get some training. So really well before the time came when the secondment that I had, which uh, was gonna be four years long before it ended, 
I actually found a local counseling course and I started a three-year training to become a counselor, which I was doing in the evenings and on Saturdays. Um, and then lockdown happened. Mm. And this was a very interesting transition. I was somebody who had commuted in London on the Northern Line twice a day uh, for over 30 years. And suddenly I was at home and I was working from home and I hadn't really gone into the office. And when the time came, when my secondment ended, I had a farewell uh, from the FT, which was entirely online. Uh, we didn't go into the office. And unlike some other people I could name, we didn't break the rules just because we were having a leaving party. <laughs> um, we did everything by the book. But actually, when the time came, uh, I discovered that the Financial Times was quite happy to maintain a relationship with me and agreed that I would continue to write for the Financial Times, that I would be a contributing editor, would remain a contributing editor. I would continue to teach on this executive education program that I had helped to set up. Uh, and by this stage, I was sort of almost, in, I was in the final year of my training to be a counselor, which I have completed a couple of months ago. So I was now in the position where uh, I saw myself as having a three-part career mm -hmm. as a writer and an executive educator and a work counselor. And, you know, that is what I decided to do. And we can, we can perhaps talk about my attitude towards retirement because some of my colleagues have quite happily just stopped doing any remunerated work. They do a little bit of voluntary work and they um, basically just enjoy themselves. They go to concerts and they go to talks and they walk around the country and they post on Twitter, which is the social media for my age, social medium for my age group, uh, pictures of themselves sort of, you know, uh, on Hadrian's wall or whatever. But I just thought I knew that that was not for me. Well, we completely understand that, Michael, I have to say. I, I think we should talk a bit more about that in a minute. I Normally at this stage of the podcast, we try and have sort of a theme structure through it. We normally say that's a big change in your life because we're trying to find people who are doing new things. Because I think this whole transition is really quite hard, going back to the whole retirement. There's no vocabulary for it either. It's all kind of tied up in knots. But you've done that brilliant thing that actually we suggest to people, if they can make it work with their employers, to have some kind of, you know, don't fall off that cliff edge. You don't necessarily have to leave. And we've just done a big project for a large corporate about what makes a great workplace for the 50 plus generation. And we have said exactly this, that actually allowing people to wind down some activities, maintain it and let them... People these days talk about the side hustle, start creating a side hustle. So you're now a side hustler, Michael. Um, but I think this is a really good way. So as you did that, were there any surprises as you went through all of this? Were there any shocks or kind of really good things? You know, what, what have you found about this whole stage of doing that? Well, the, the nice surprise was uh, that when we had the discussion about what I would do next at the FT, as I said, this was a nice surprise. They wanted in some way uh, to retain my experience oh, in yeah. some respect. Uh, they wanted to do this in a new way. And this is one of the things I think that becomes a problem for people my age who've been in senior positions is you're costing quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you pose a dilemma for the organization. They could, you know, you could go down to two days a week or three days a week. But eventually, I suppose the problem for them is they'll become a top heavy organization with all these people hanging around for 20, 30 years working two, three days a week, which might well work for them. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, they said, well, how about you still do this or that? And this was absolutely fine for me because it was a transition and lockdown was a transition. So that was the surprise. I mean, I would say the other surprise, the very pleasant surprise was I, I didn't know as we were in lockdown. I mean, the FT and journalism in general has got a very well-trodden path for people retiring. There's sort of certain rituals that one goes through. Um, the famous one is the banging out, which uh, dates back to the time of hot metal printing when printers used to leave and then journalists adopted this. As you leave the newsroom for the last time, everybody grabs some hard objects and starts banging the desks and makes a huge noise. The FT also has this uh, tradition of a leaving page where they do a, a spoof front, front page of the Financial Times where they actually... Um, uh, well, they actually sort of rip you apart mercilessly. It's very, very <laughs> funny. Every foible you knew you had and you hoped hadn't been noticed <laughs> is mentioned in this. So I didn't know how this was going to work during lockdown. It was different, but it was actually, uh, it was really quite a nice event because uh, we did it online mm. and I didn't actually know whether anybody would turn up. And I did it with a colleague who was also retiring. Uh, but sort of, you know, well over 100 people turned up online. Oh, wow. And they online there was a new a new sort of tradition developed which we didn't used to do face to face which is the, the general thing when you were in the office is the editor would make a speech saying how marvelous you were but also including some jokes about you so they would sort of email around the office saying any embarrassing stories about this person that I include in my speech so the editor would make a speech and then you make a speech and then everybody applauds and then you sort of, you know, you 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 drink your sort of uh, warm white wine and sort of, you know, have some crisps <laughs> and then everybody bangs you out. But online, a new thing developed is is, is uh, the editor would make a speech, which she did a nice speech. And then I made a speech and then my colleague who was leaving made a speech. And then the editor threw the thing open and asked people to unmute their microphones and speak about us, Ooh. which they did. And, um, you know, it was very nice to hear from colleagues and they'd invited colleagues back who'd left the FT or I'd asked for them to be invited as well. People I hadn't worked with for years and some people sort of, you know, mentioned things that, as I say, you hope they hadn't noticed. And then they presented, <laughs> they sent me this page, this front page of the FT with a big caricature of me in the middle. And um, they um, they did an absolute, it was absolutely hilarious. I, I'm a bit of a, um, known to be a complete pedant on the Financial Times, an absolute stickler for uh, grammatical correctness. And uh, it's something I had a reputation for. And they had a big front page story about how um, I was going to become a counsellor and that the um, psychology profession has uh, discovered a new syndrome, which is grammar derangement syndrome, which is... <laughs> People who have terrible grammar and, you know, this is mild mannered uh, counsellor, namely me, going absolutely berserk at his client's grammatical mistakes. So all sorts of things like this, uh, all sorts of jokes about me. I, the last few years on the FT, I wrote a travel column mm. and um, I'm, I know you're about to travel, uh, uh, Trevor. I, I was renowned for telling people in my column and in person, never check in your luggage. 
last thing you should do is checking your luggage you i completely really, agree <laughs> you don't really need as much stuff as you think you really don't need that much don't check in your luggage you can take it all on they did a spoof column of mine in which i said that i always travel with two pairs of boxes in a converted cigarette case <laughs> so um uh that was you know it was a very nice send-off and given the fact that um i had seen some colleagues we'd gone for walks outside but we were in deepest lockdown at that time i couldn't see anybody i couldn't go in the office and in fact i had to go into the ft office last week uh to record another podcast because cool. uh, i've done loads of these i'm in demand and um uh, I went back with my former desk mates to our part of the building and they said, here are your drawers, by the way. Are you ever going to empty them? And I realized I'd never come in to take my oh. possessions away. Oh, yeah. So uh, I did it then. So that was a it was a transition I wasn't expecting, but it was in some ways helpful because I'd already stopped going into the office for it. I hadn't been into the office for a year. Mm. It, 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 it's interesting. Um, we had somebody at one of our workshops who had had their leaving do uh online mm. and she said it was like attending your own funeral <laughs> because people were invited to say what they thought and they all said lovely things um michael i just wanted to ask you um you know you had a plan yeah people don't you you kind of transitioned it sounds in a in a relatively smooth but certainly controlled way and, and lots of people don't I mean, lots of people fall off a cliff mm -hmm. i wondered if in this journey there were any ups and downs whether there were low moments whether um, you turned to other people for help w often it is a, a difficult time for people I, I just wondered if you had had any darker moments uh, yes I mean, I would say it was um, it was quite a revelation training as a counsellor. And I spent some time thinking if actually this really was for me, uh, because what I realised is that uh, I was transitioning from a very fact-based job. You know, journalism is about getting the facts. Yeah. Yeah. And this is particularly true of the FT. The FT is absolutely punctilious about getting things right. I mean, making a mistake on the FT is the worst thing you can do. It was, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a difficult transition to going from that to a counselling environment, which is really about feelings. And this is a bit new for me. And what I want to do as a counsellor is um, to really try and marry those two worlds. One of my classmates on my counselling course said something quite acute about me. Uh, we were talking about how we approach things. And she said to me, facts are your comfort zone. Mm. And I thought that was a, a very insightful thing to say. Uh, she's right. And so the dark moment was thinking as a counsellor, advising people how to deal with work issues. I've got to think about how I'm going to do that. So that has been a dark moment. Uh, the other thing I should mention, I also had another lucky break while I was ending. Um, uh, in the last few months on the FT, I think I had two, three months to go. Uh, I got the very good news that I'd been given a book contract. Mm. And um, so I spent the first six, seven months for various tax reasons. I wasn't allowed to work for the FT for six, seven months after I left. And so I wrote this book during that time, a book called Inside the Leaders Club, which is 
about really my experiences as a manager. And it also draws on um, network, FT networking events, high level networking events that I'd moderated and that other people had moderated. So, you know, that was another helpful transition. But just to come back to your question, Trevor, were there any low moments? I expected it to be a low moment that I was no longer part of this organization, which I had been part of for over half of my life. And I thought that was going to be a big thing because working for the FT was it was a great environment, an absolutely wonderful workplace. It was also a kind of family, but also um, it gave me status. I was no longer just this freelance journalist scrambling up the side of a mountain. I was now somebody who a smart PR person wanted to have lunch with. And I, I, I worked for trade magazines before I joined the FT. And um, uh, you'd have difficulty getting people to return your call. You phone and you say, hello, I'm Michael Skopinka from the Financial Times. I say, just a moment, we're putting you right through. <laughs> so, you know, you had a status. It was important for me. I was an immigrant. I grew up in South Africa, as you can hear. And, uh, you know, being an FT journalist was a, an important status position for me. And I think a lot of us have worked in we've worked in organizations for a long time, come to rely on the status of that organization. So I thought that was going to be quite a plunge. Yeah. And it hasn't been, maybe because I still have a Financial Times title, but maybe because what I've discovered is it's not that bad on the other side. Yeah. yeah. It really isn't. You're still you. And um, the most important thing, I think, is to kind of keep contacts and keep networks. Oh. So uh, I actually had lunch a while ago with another XFT colleague, and uh, we were saying we must do this again. And I said to him, how about we arrange, how about we start a lunch club where every couple of months, a group of us, both current and former FT people, all meet up for lunch. Anyway, I proposed this to a few people. When I went in that last week, as I said, to clear, and I cleared my desk, I, I suggested it to some of my ex-colleagues and they loved the idea. So last night, actually, I set up a WhatsApp group called Lunch Club for all of us. And we're all meeting for lunch. So, you know, I think it has been important to maintain those contacts. I would say, Trevor, another answer to your question, uh, lockdown was a low point. The pandemic was a low point. I think for all of us, I found it very difficult. But I also found another way of living. I mean, one of the things I discovered is if you don't commute and living in London, I've got I had an hour's commute each way, even though I still live in the in North London, uh, being free to those two hours, I used to walk when we weren't allowed to go to any restaurants or pubs or anything. I just used to walk. I used to walk in the woods near my home. And I started listening to audiobooks. I listened to the entire, all the novels of Jane Austen from one to six, one after the other. I, I hadn't read them since I was a schoolboy. I was put off by how awful I thought they were then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was it was a dark time, I think, for all of us. It was a dark time for the world. Mm. Um, so it was a very unusual situation. I didn't expect to find myself in that situation. So it's interesting you saying that it's not as bad. I don't think we said on the dark side, but that the, the whole thing is not as bad as you expected. I'd like to go back to where we started saying about the whole, oh, I hate this word retirement. It's quite interesting. So many people, and, and in fact, in our podcast, so many people just talk about that R word. They can't even bear to talk about the whole retirement concept. What are your thoughts? Because you were saying you've got thoughts on that. Let's just bring those in then, Michael. I think there are a couple of things. The one thing is, I was, as I say, coming to the second half of my 60s. And I think, well, I still, you know, I mean, gosh, any of us, anything could happen to any of us at any time. 
Um, we could all drop dead tomorrow, but you know, it's possible I've still got another 20, 30 years left. At least, yeah. And what do I want to do with that? Um, and I felt very strongly as I thought about it that um I wanted to be a participant rather than a spectator. I like that. Um, I mean, there, there are times I like being a spectator. I like the theater and I missed it very much during lockdown. I love, I like movies, even sports sometimes, but really I wanted to be a participant. I, I want to still be playing this game, whatever it is, yeah. for all sorts of reasons, still contributing, still being active. And the other thing, and uh, the executive education programs that I was involved in taught me this, I want to be involved with all generations. I loved doing programs with younger colleagues and people coming in uh, with new thoughts, new ideas. I'm not a big one. And anybody who reads my book will know this. I'm not a big fan of sort of, you know, uh, baby boomers like me can't talk to Gen Z or can't no, talk no, to no. I, I don't go along with all this. Kind of thing. But we're all at different stages of our lives and different things are happening to us. And I really, really like that mix of ages and generations and working together. And I didn't want to lose that. So just to come back a Victoria, but not everybody feels this way. Some people are quite happy. They think I've done my job. I've, I've done my work. Um, you know, I, uh, I just want to go off and do other things. And I can understand that. The other thing I would say is there's the financial side of things as well. Now, I'm part of that very, very lucky generation uh, who stayed in the same organization for a very long time, partly because I had a defined benefit pension scheme. That's one of the reasons why I felt I needed to carry on, even when sometimes I didn't really want to. Um, so it meant I had more financial options, but I was also very influenced by a financial advisor I went to see when it came to taking my corporate pension and deciding how to take it. And she said something to me, which I haven't forgotten, which is she said, people make two mistakes. They underestimate their longevity and they overestimate their health. I really took that to heart. I thought, you know, even a, a, a you know, a very adequate pension, you've got to think about the future. And she said, you've got to think about the fact if you do require full-time care, you or one of your loved ones at some time in the future, you're looking at a lot of money. You could be looking at up to a hundred thousand pounds a year. And so given that we've got 20, 30 years ahead and inflation goes up and down and who knows what happens to the economy, I also felt it was important to keep on earning money. You've obviously spoken to some slightly more thoughtful yeah. financial advisors than I have. <laughs> well, the other thing, and I'm sure this has come up in these podcasts before because it's been such a, an influential book, is um, uh, the book 100, The 100-Year 100 Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Scott and Grattan book, yeah, um, which is uh, very definite about the importance of looking at both the financial and personal side yeah. of things. And, you know, it's quite interesting. Uh, you know, we're speaking uh, on the day that, uh, well, the day after we got the news that Nigel Lawson had died. Mm. And, you know, um, I remember him as chancellor. I remember all the ups and downs. And I remember everything that came after that. You know, I remember Black Wednesday with Norman Lamont and the pound crashing out of the exchange rate mechanism and interest rates going up, I think, to 12%. And it just made me realize financially, we can't take the world for granted. Yeah. You yeah. know, the fact that we had this big scare in the last few months with final salary pension schemes turned out that their investment strategy had actually been a very dangerous one. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got to kind of keep thinking, uh, I've got to keep moving. 
I've got to keep earning. And the other important thing, I feel you've got to keep learning. Yes. You touched on people who go off and are very happy. I think you said riding their bikes and traveling and posting on Hadrian's Wall and things. Do you think they're really happy? Or do you think later, I think uh, my my theory is people are really happy for maybe six months, even up to maybe two years. And that then they wake up one morning and think, is this it? But by then, I think they may feel they've burnt their bridges, boats, whatever you do, and that it's too hard to get back in and they, they make the best of it. Am I, do you think there's anything in that or do you disagree? I've come across both. Mm. Uh, this deputy I mentioned who said to me, make a plan, he said, I'm bored, Rigid. Now I've done that riding and I don't know what I'm going to do uh, now. Yes. I have other friends. Uh, I'm thinking of one in particular who was in a senior, been senior government positions for many years, who is very, very happy and who um, has got projects which are different. I mean, walking the whole length of the Thames, for example, uh, you know, or I don't know, people sort of think, you know, I'm going to. I'm, I'm, I'm going to finally read Proust. I'm going to do all the reading I haven't done. I've seen people who are happy doing it. Yeah. Um, I know I wouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do like the mix now. And one of the things, and, you know, Victoria, you've been in this position for a long time. I hadn't been in this position for a very long time, not having a boss. Yes. I found not having a boss is a great liberation. I mean, you know, every bit of work I do has got to be good because, you know, I'm I'm self-employed and I'm a freelancer. You're only as good as your last job. So, you know, the pressure doesn't stop. But not having a boss and I've had bosses I really like, bosses I didn't like at all. But not having one at all is um, it's a great liberation. It's a great feeling. Yeah, yeah somebody somebody said that to us uh, also, Victoria, when often people say you know i i control my diary and i i'm in control of my time and that's valuable to me and he said yeah 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 that's true but the thing i really love is no one's looking over my shoulder yeah. telling me if i'm doing a good job or not <laughs> I yeah. thought, that's fantastic so michael i completely take your point about no one knows what the future holds but i'm going to ask you given that you've got another the 20 or more productive years what what's on the horizon do you think so um as i said i will continue to be a writer i will never stop writing i've written this one book um after many many years of newspaper articles you know and i've sort of got my thoughts maybe on the next one i still continue to write for the ft for uh i'm on the editorial advisory board of uh the magazine the journal for imd business school in switzerland i write for them as well um, so it's writing on one side, the executive education continues. Uh, and then, as I say, I am going to be developing a practice as a work career counsellor, uh, trying to combine these worlds of feelings and facts, really, of how you deal with work, how you deal with bosses, maybe even how you deal with what happens after you finish working. So I would say it's those three things. And then the fourth one is voluntary work as well. You know, I think for people who've had the kind of privileges I've had in life, um, it's important to give back. Until lockdown, I used to work uh, in a homeless shelter. Uh, one of the things I'd like to do is, um, which I'm going to be looking into now, is uh, career advice for refugees uh, is something I'm very keen on. I am the son and grandson of refugees. I feel very strongly about refugees. I um, 
feel I've got a very, very strong feeling for people trying to make their way in a new society as my parents and grandparents had to do. So those are the, I would say, four things. I love them. So, Michael, you asked others for advice and you got it, that bit about make a plan. What, with hindsight, would you have done anything differently? But more to the point, what advice would you now give to others? Clearly that plan bit, probably. But what else would you say to others about to embark on this new venture, if you like? Well, the first thing I'd say is don't panic. Don't panic is there's nothing obvious for you to do. Um, one of the things I think we all realize when we come to the end of a job in a particular thing is actually how many people you know. Yes. And what a, yeah. what a big network you have, much bigger than actually you think. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, you know, when you're on your own, people start approaching you or they sometimes do it quite tentatively and say, I don't know if you'll be interested in doing any work on this or that. And so they begin saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd be quite interested. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's that. Um, there are a couple of other things I would say. Another very, very important aspect for me is exercise mm. and keeping fit. Um, you know, uh, I'm from the I'm of the baby boomer generation. I was just a bit too young to have been at Woodstock, perhaps, but you know, of the generation which never planned to get old. Mm. And uh, you know, so for me, you know physical fitness exercise is really important as I say I'm a big big walker something I really did a lot of during lockdown uh, but you know um, one of the things about not having to go into the office every day I can start every day in the pool or in the gym yeah. and uh, you know that to me is absolutely vital I mean if we are going to live 20 or 30 years and anything can happen to us you know physical physical infirmity accidents dementia cognitive deterioration all the things we fear I just think, you know, push it out as far as you can by just if your health allows you to, you know, keeping as fit as you can is the one piece of advice I give anybody of any age. And it's never too late to start doing that. You're absolutely right. My mother-in-law is 93. She goes to the gym every day. Wow. At 93. Wow. Good for her. Exactly. So your point is completely valid. Yeah. Completely right. So, Michael... Do you know what? I think you've pretty much got that perfect scenario here of all the things that we say to people. So all the things that I think makes unretirement great and, and that learning bit has to be huge in there, but also about the younger generations staying active. And I think that bit about exercise and fitness, I think the two go hand in hand, to be honest, because I think I see people deteriorate so quickly when they don't do very much. And, you know, you kind of want to respect people's choices. But it just doesn't seem very healthy to me, this kind of, not, it, it's that bit about having purpose, I think. So I can't thank you enough, Michael. Um, maybe one day, except you'll always be far fitter and far healthier than I'm going to be going up any mountain, even now, or still now, maybe. Um, thank you so much for that. We thoroughly enjoyed it and wish you well. And please stay in touch with us and let us know how this next stage develops. And we look forward to watching it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks, Trevor. It's been a pleasure talking to you. What he's demonstrating is what we're trying to say to people, that the more that you do think ahead, and so he spent four years thinking about what am I going to do? And that's very rare for people. Again, last night I was in London and I was with um, a whole group of about, I don't know, 30 managing partners of accountancy firms. And we were saying, you know, I, I started off, I was doing a presentation. I said, how many of you thought about the 100 year life and what that means for you and what you're going to do in it? And 
luckily nobody put their hand up because otherwise my presentation was completely screwed. So I said, well, thank you for not putting your hands up. So yes, we've all thought and planned ahead. But that's the problem that people are so busy. Well, there's two bits, isn't it? People are so busy and they're, fo you know, when you're professionals particularly, but I think in any kind of role, you're so focused on the now, your clients, you know, we've been through COVID, you've got the cost of living crisis, you've got, you know, so many things going on that you're focused on the now and how do I make this work? But the other bit is, even when I just did an interview last week with a partner in a professional firm, and he said, I should have listened to the advice that you and he rattled off two or three other people's names. But he said, you know what, you make your excuse that you're very busy because it means you, you can put it off. And he said, what I need to say to everybody is this is even harder when you're on a sofa, not at work. You know, actually starting from trying to do all of this planning is much worse once you've left and you're yeah. sitting there on your own on a sofa is what he was saying. And I think that's so difficult. But I was thinking, how, how do you explain to people? You can tell them you need to plan. And that's why someone like Michael's so good, because he's showing that by planning, it may not all work out, and that's fine, it doesn't matter, but it means that you're, you've are got to focus on the future. That yeah, he, he had several threads, didn't he? Mm. And, and those threads, um, a lot of them came from listening to people. Yes. You know, so he, also, he listened to the person that said, yeah. make a plan. Yeah. But then he listened to people saying, you know what, you'd be really good at this or you should charge for this. And and so, you know, other people planted an idea and he took it and ran with it. And then, you know, each time we asked him, something else came up, you know, like giving back and volunteering and, you know, yeah. the connection he felt with refugees. Who knows what the future will hold? But, you know, he's got four or five things there that he can play with and do more more with some, more with the other. He, he admitted he doesn't know if... If everything's going to work out but you know having that as a series of opportunities is incredibly fulfilling and that that's the other bit that I like because I mean the people we work with there are so many they literally they have a completely I was going to say blank sheet but it's more than just a blank sheet because a blank sheet sounds like it's full of opportunity whereas it's an empty sheet there is nothing in their brains or on a piece of paper of where do I start with thinking about and they're not particularly creative people so they're they're very logical. Um, they're paid for their logic and their, going back to Michael's thing, actually, facts, you know, they're very, uh, they deal with facts all the time. And this bit about the unknown, and it's terrifying for them, and they don't know where to start. And, you know, we've talked about try and find things, go back to what you care about and keep a notebook, yeah. listen to things on the radio and think, I care about that. And, you know, I think the clue for somebody, if they had a blank sheet, you know, Michael thinking about my parents, my grandparents were refugees. I've got this career counselling I've just done now. I want to link that up and help refugees. So it's trying to find some links of, it's, you know, you can't do it for other people. You can only go so far and give them sort of clues and processes and roadmaps, if you like. You can't yeah. do that linking. What, what do you personally care about? But there were some other little gems in there as well. Um, I love. <laughs> don't panic. About, no, right? yes, what they do. Really, do that's really. And the other is, you know, the importance of physical fitness and exercise. And, I know. And, and the connection with a, that feeling of well-being, being attached to, to so you know, knowing that you're doing what, what you can to mm. stay physically active. I, I, th I think, and you made the point, Victoria, about the connection between physical fitness and mental fitness. 
you know, all of these things are, uh, you know, things that people ought to be writing down and putting in their plan. <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. That was wonderful. Uh, it was wonderful. Going back in time like that. Um, and lovely to see where people go. So if you've enjoyed listening to Michael today, we have others. Of course, everybody's completely different, but um, other stories for you to listen. And hopefully you just take a few nuggets away from each person and maybe share them on with other people. We'd love to um, have you recommend our podcast if you're enjoying it and do subscribe. You need to go to next-up.com and go to the podcast bit and come and join us another time. Yes, we look forward to whoever our next guest is. Mm. As you say, they're always an inspiration. I hope I hope that comes across. And, and do come and join us again, next-up.com. Don't forget the hyphen, and we'll see you next time.